Because we're going through the Gospels, the stories of Jesus' life, seeing his love for those in need. He offers grace to those who already consider themselves righteous. And he extends grace. He gives grace to all who admit they are sinners. So listen as I read Luke chapter 7, beginning at verse 36. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, so he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. At a minimum, it would have been an uncomfortable scene, right? This woman has interrupted this nice meal. And it's this woman. You know her reputation, but, but, but think of the, the scenario. Just the public display of emotion, a woman weeping during a dinner party, that would be enough to put everybody on edge, to make the room a little bit uncomfortable. But it's much worse than that, isn't it? It's her humiliating gestures, like, the, like a slave falling at Jesus' feet for the host, for the guests, it would have been a confusing scene. How do you handle a scenario like this? What's the proper protocol when someone interrupts a dinner party weeping and pouring perfume and, 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 and wiping her, her hair across the feet of the guest of honor? A confusing scene, but it's a challenge to Jesus. The people are wondering, how will Jesus react? 
Does he really know what's happening here? So this morning, I want us to just walk through this true story and see the way in which it's laid out for us to, to see the, the lesson of forgiveness that Jesus has for us. But first, we are, we are confronted with the interruption. The scene has been set in verse 36 for us. We are the house of one of the Pharisees, a religious man, an honored man. But Jesus, we know, has already had trouble with Pharisees. They've been rejecting him. They are plotting against him. But Jesus accepts the invitation. Now, at the beginning of chapter 7, we looked at this weeks ago, we saw Jesus willing to go into the house of a centurion, a foreigner, a man at the opposite end of the, the religious spectrum from the Pharisee, an outsider. And yet, the centurion at the beginning of the chapter had significant power and money and wealth like this Pharisee. Because he has enough standing that Jesus will come, that he can have a public gathering, has enough money to be able to throw this kind of party where people are reclining around, where slaves would have been present. Jesus accepts his invitation, even the invitation of a Pharisee, because Jesus is available to all types of people, rich and poor, those that would call themselves righteous and those that have been rejected. And then the woman enters. Verse 37 tells us what everybody in the room already knows. She has lived a sinful life in that town. And that's not merely the thought process of Simon, the host of the party. I mean, he does recognize that she's a sinner in verse 39. It's, th- these are the words of Luke describing the scene for us. This is the reputation she has. And even Jesus' response to her, he acknowledges her sins in verse 48. She is rightly being called a sinner. This is not the hypocrisy of Simon alone that condemns her. His hypocrisy will see condemn him. She is rightly called a sinner. Now, we don't know what it was, but everybody else there did. They knew whether it was her vocation or her reputation or past actions. They knew who she was. And so Jesus is there reclining at the table because we have to consider in the first century here in in the regions of Galilee and Judea, they didn't sit around a table. They didn't set a table with forks and knives and fancy plates like you and I do. For a meal like this, they would have reclined, lying on their sides up close to the table, and so that Jesus is laying on his side with his feet out behind him. So that this woman, as she comes in, and, and it's not that it's, it's if she's broken through a, a door and gotten past the butler and, and interrupted the party. It's probably more likely in a courtyard, that, that, it's, that it's a semi-public sort of event. Now, she's not on the guest list. She doesn't have a, a place at the table, but but it's closer to a a neighborhood picnic than it is a a formal invitation-only dinner party. She has access, but she's there at the feet of Jesus, weeping. She begins then to humiliate herself, down on the floor, wetting the feet of Jesus with her tears, taking her hair and wiping his feet clean. She kisses the feet of Jesus. She, she came prepared, though. This isn't a, a spontaneous reaction. She came prepared with a jar of alabaster with expensive perfume, and she's pouring it 
on Jesus. And so that's the scene. See, the Pharisee realizes he knows who she is by reputation, and he thinks Jesus doesn't know what's going on here. Jesus is the only person in the party who is lost as to what's happening. That's, that's what the Pharisee is thinking to himself in verse 39. If he knew who this was, and the implication there, and just the, the format of the sentence, I mean, you can even hear it in English, but it's explicit in the, in the Greek construction. If he knew who, who this, if Jesus was a prophet, which he's clearly not, is the assumption. If he was a prophet, he would know who was touching her. He would know what kind of women, what, what kind of woman she is. See, because the Pharisee thinks Jesus doesn't know, or maybe even worse, he thinks he, he might know, but he's the kind of guy who spends time with sinners. I mean, that's actually the context that we, we're, we encounter Jesus here. If you look back at verse 34, now I didn't read this to you. We skipped over this verse. It came before what I read. But back in verse 34, Jesus is describing the conflict he's having with the religious people. He says in verse 34 of our chapter, Luke 7, the Son of Man, speaking of himself, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, so this is what people are saying about Jesus, what religious people are saying about Jesus. You say, Jesus is a glutton. Jesus is a drunkard. Jesus is a friend of tax collectors. Jesus is a friend of sinners. And so maybe worse than not knowing that she's a sinner, oh, as Jesus knows and he's willing to tolerate this kind of action this kind of affection, this kind of attention from a sinner. Now, Jesus reveals to us, reveals to Simon that he actually is a prophet. Because not only does he know who this woman is, what else does he know? Look at, look at verse 40. In his response to Simon, he knows what Simon said to himself. And, and said to himself, I don't think means that Simon whispered it and Jesus has super hearing. I think Simon was thinking it, and Jesus has supernatural insight in that he is more than a prophet. He knows your very thoughts. Because when we, when we read in verse 40, Jesus answered him. Wait, he didn't say anything. But Jesus knows what he's thinking, and so Jesus answered him. Then there's fighting words. Do you see what Jesus is doing? Simon I have something to tell you. See, Simon thinks the scene reflects badly on Jesus. And Jesus is saying, oh no, Simon, this scene reflects badly on you. And so he tells Jesus a story, a simple story, one that you and I quickly understand. There are two men who each owe a moneylender, a certain amount of money. A denarii is a, is a day's wage for a worker or a soldier. And so to owe 500 denarii, that's, you know, a couple of years' worth of, of, of wages. To owe, uh, to owe 50 is a couple of months. I mean, it's the difference of, of the forgiveness. It's the difference of, of somebody paying off your full mortgage and somebody helping pay off the remainder of your car loan. You'd be thankful in both cases. But Jesus, Jesus says both of these men are in the predicament where they cannot pay the debt. And so the moneylender does something unexpected. Because remember, moneylenders don't forgive debts. I mean, at least moneylenders who are still in business, right? Your relationship with your moneylender is not a relationship of love and affection. I doubt when you write a check or you, or you, you make payment through, through your authorized accounts that when you pay a mortgage payment, you, you I love my banker so much, I'm just going to, 
you know what, I'm going to throw in a little extra because I love him so much. No, we begrudgingly pay back what is owed. And yet, when forgiven, when the unexpected happens, when unmerited forgiveness is extended, then the response becomes a response of love. And so Jesus asks Simon the question, now which of these, which of these men will love him more? Now the answer is obvious. But Simon hedges a little bit in his response, doesn't he? I suppose, now we could we could give Simon the benefit of the doubt here and say, well, maybe he's just thinking to himself, I would like a little more character development. I mean, the story was pretty quick. I would have liked to know more of their background. How did they get into the scenario? How deep in debt are they to other lenders? You know, could they have, I need to know more, but I don't think that's what he's doing. I think he realizes that the tables have been turned, that he thought he had caught Jesus in this compromising position, Jesus turning the story on him. I think Simon realizes I better be careful what I say next because I think, I think I'm the one in the crosshairs. And so he says, I suppose the one who would love him more is the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly. Simon gets the right answer. The story is simple. And it's simple enough then that Jesus draws the analogy by condemning the actions of Simon in contrast to the actions of this woman. Now, all the cultural norms would have condemned her. She's not invited. She's interrupted the party. She's caused a scene. She's done something inappropriate. But Jesus asks Simon in verse 44, do you see this woman? I came into your house. Simon, you didn't have a servant come and wash my feet but she washed them with her tears. She wiped my feet with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, a common sign of greeting. I mean, that's true in many parts of the world still today. And yet this woman fell at my feet and has not stopped kissing my feet. Simon, you didn't go the extra step and put me in a place of honor and anoint me with oil as a, as a revered guest, but she's poured out perfume on my feet. And then Jesus in verse 47 summarizes the lesson for us. Therefore, I tell you, he's talking to Simon. He's confronting Simon. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. We understand the lesson. She sees the depths of her sin. She sees the forgiveness, and so her response is the response of love. Now, let's look a little more carefully at verse 47, because I actually think upon first reading, we might get it, we might get it mixed up. We might read it just because of the way the sentence is constructed, where Jesus says, her many sins have been forgiven for she loved much. So we might say, she loved and then her sins were forgiven. Okay, but that, that can't be right because then that actually undermines the whole relation, that, that undermines the whole analogy. Do the men in the story love the moneylender first? No. He forgives their debt. So, so what Jesus is saying, he's not saying that she has merited forgiveness because of her great love. No, he's saying 
first she was forgiven. Even the, even the, the perfect tense of the verbs there, her many sins have been forgiven. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a tongueful in, in English, but it's, it's clear in the Greek that, that this is a past tense. She came in as a woman who understood the forgiveness of God because she heard the forgiveness of God. And, and in today's service, you heard it repeatedly. That God is a forgiving God, our call to worship. That God takes our, he forgives our sins and removes them as far as the east is from the west. Our, our confession of sin, use the language of scripture, that God is a forgiving God. We, we, can, we can mount up the images that God pours our, our sins into the depths of the sea. That God is compassionate and loving. And so she came in understanding the forgiveness of God, likely having heard Jesus announce forgiveness publicly. First, she was forgiven and then she loved. Okay, and the reason I'm, the reason I'm pressing this so, so strongly here is because to get those out of order is to have a totally different religious system. So because if first I love, and only then would I be forgiven, well, that's a religion upon, uh, who, in whom are you placing your trust? Yourself. I have to show, I have to merit God's love and God's favor. But you see, to, to turn it around is, is not just to, to slightly explain it differently. It's to have an entirely different religious system in which you're no longer trusting yourself, but you're saying, I have been forgiven. God forgave me. And so I love. Commentators point out that, that her love was not meritorious, but it was evidence that she'd been forgiven. Her love was not the cause of her forgiveness, but the confirmation that she had been forgiven. God loved us, God forgave us, and then we respond in love. And so the lesson of the story is that when you understand the forgiveness that God has given, the unmerited favor that God offers, then you will love God. But, but you and I, I mean, we would never get carried away like this. I mean, you would never catch me doing something so foolish as expressing unlimited devotion and love to God that other people would look at me and say, ooh, I think he loves a little too much. No, I mean, when I show up, I clean myself up. I stay in my lane. I do all the right things. And I do it stoically at times. But it's the woman's extravagant emotion that Jesus praises. Because as you plumb the depths of forgiveness, then your gratitude wells up in a response of love and devotion, an emotional, an uncontrollable joy and, uh, for the mercy that God has given, a weeping over your own sin, a brokenness over who you were, but a joy in who you have become. See, we don't we don't let people see our emotions because, well, then they might think we're a little crazy. And we've been talking about, about how Jesus' ministry provides an example for us as a church of what it means to be evangelists. And that word evangel, it, it's just the word for good news. And so to evangelize, to do evangelism is to share good news. And, and perhaps our hesitation is, well, we don't want people to think we're crazy. We don't want them to, to think strangely of us. But, but maybe, maybe part, of your, part of your hesitation is that it, it also feels so impersonal. 
that your experience in the past has been, has been cold and, and it, it, it has felt to you whether you are on the receiving end of somebody sharing with you or you were the one sharing, that it just felt like it, it didn't matter if you knew the person's name. We, don't, we never learned this woman's name. It, it, it at this point feels, feels very impersonal. And, and so maybe you, you, you hesitate. Now, there's recent research from this year by Bar- the Barna Group that, that studied professing Christians. And, and, and so they narrowed the group to people who go to churches that announce this good news and people who are active in those churches. So it's a, it's a smaller sample of genuine Bible-believing, church-going Christians. And they said that 95% of Christians that fit that category agree that sharing the good news is part of what it means to be a Christian. Okay, that's good, all right? And I hope we're close to that by now, having spent week after week of pointing out how, how evangelism is part of our test. But 95%, 96%, depending on, on what age you fall into, believe that, that this is a basic part of being a Christian. And most of us feel generally equipped to at least get through the basics. But we still hesitate to share our faith. Okay, now one of the main findings of the study, and it broke people down by age categories. So one of the main findings of the study was that the younger that you are, and this is talking about adults, but that the younger that you are, the more likely you were to agree with this statement. It is wrong to share one's beliefs, one's personal beliefs, with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share your faith. So it is wrong to evangelize. Actually, a quarter of the people who responded say evangelism is, so 95% say evangelism is central to what it means to be a Christian, but more than a quarter say, but it's wrong to share your faith with somebody of a different faith in hopes that they will believe what you believe. Now, the tension gets even higher the younger that you are. Nearly half of millennials, okay, so that's people sort of, we'll we'll just make me the dividing line. People younger than me, adults younger than me, 47% would say it's wrong at Christians. It's wrong to share your Christian faith with someone else in the goal of, of of making them believe what you believe. Okay, now, the headlines focused on this, even the headline of, of the morning group. And now, to be fair, writing headlines, I think, is hard work for editors because you need people to click through and read the rest of it. But this is what the headline says. Almost half of practicing, practicing Christian millennials say evangelism is wrong. Now, our reaction might be, to sort of point our fingers at those kids in a sort of kids, what's the matter with kids today kind of way. And, and the scary thing is this, we're, we're now into surveys where I'm on the, the not kids side of the surveys. I'm on the finger pointing side. And, and while that was the focus of the headlines, I think as you read the report, even the very next sentence of the report, you'll realize that, that the tension is caused for younger Christians, for millennials, because they are engaged in more meaningful personal relationships with non-Christians. 
They're more connected culturally to, to what's happening. They know more people. They work with more people. See, the, the problem is you can be part of the 95% who agree that evangelism is necessary, point your finger at those young people, and never do evangelism yourself. See, you'll never actually feel the tension of sharing the gospel with a real person if you never share the gospel with a real person. See, I actually think what the study shows is that millennials understand this is intensely personal. And, and so, yes, we need to, when, you, when we read reports like this, we need to emphasize that Jesus is the only way of salvation. Jesus is the only hope. And you, you hear us say that again and again from the pulpit because that's the, the, our, our culture confronts us and says, no, no, that can't be. Let everyone believe what he wants to believe. And so, yes, as if you're a younger Christian here, then you need to hear the truth that Jesus is the only hope of salvation. Your friends need to hear that truth. But we can't point fingers without recognizing that as soon as you start sharing the gospel with somebody who has a different religious belief, you will realize that tension. You've come into conflict. But you see, the, the answer, the, 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 yes, can evangelism at times be done in an impersonal way? Yes. But is the solution then to stop doing evangelism? No, do it in a personal way. See, and actually there was a danger that I realized in preparing this sermon, or, or perhaps a danger if we'd, if we'd stopped reading at verse 47. The scene, the, the chaos, the interruption, and then the lesson from Jesus, and then he holds this woman up as a model. She, he, he completes the analogy of the parable by saying, look, she is the one who has been forgiven much, and so she shows us what love looks like. And maybe you have this problem when you read Scripture, but, but particularly as a preacher, I'm, I'm ready to like jump in, like, let's start preaching it. So much so that I almost overlooked the woman. But Jesus doesn't. Yes, in verses 44 through 47, he's confronting Simon. And yes, in verse 48 when he says, your sins are forgiven, he makes a bold theological claim that the people in verse 49 realize, oh, wait, he just claimed to be God because only God can forgive sins. Who does he think he is? Yes, it's a bold theological claim, but what does Jesus do? He turned and he says it to her. He is radically personal in his evangelism. This woman who has come in weeping over her sin, rejoicing in the ingratitude, in the forgiveness that God offers, now hears from the lips of Jesus himself the very words we all long to hear, your sins are forgiven. Even as the crowd get, gets upset and agitated again in verse 49, Jesus, again, verse 50, speaks to her. Yes, she is an example in his story. She is the picture, not the Pharisee, but this woman, previously viewed as a sinner, now forgiven. She is an example for us, but she is much more than that. Look at Jesus' love for her. See, maybe you've been overlooked, maybe you've been mistreated, or maybe that's, that's your, your very hesitation to believe in Christianity is the way the church has historically treated women. And, and, and yes, the church has been wrong, and we need to expose sin where it is, but our solution is to do what Jesus does. When she comes in and begins weeping, he doesn't motion for somebody to come over and get rid of her. Let's move it along. 
He doesn't pull his feet up under him out of the way of, of her. No, he takes, I mean, imagine somebody coming in and doing that to you. I mean, weeping over your feet, w- wiping her hair uh, between the, the cracks of your toes. It's, there's, there's something horrific about what she's doing, and yet there's something beautiful because she loves Jesus because she has been forgiven. And while the crowd only thinks of her as a sinner, Jesus sees her as forgiven. She will not be defined by her depravity. She's being defined by her Savior. Because look at the question that Jesus asked Simon in verse 44. Do you see this woman? Uh, yeah, she's made a giant scene and ruined my party. That's all we've been talking about. What are you talking about, Jesus? Of course I see her. Simon, do you see this woman? Do you see her as I see her? Do you see her as God sees her? And Jesus sees her. Luke never tells us her name. But Jesus knows her name. Jesus took her name and wrote it down before creation in his book of life. And we might, like the crowds, recognize there's great authority in what Jesus does in verse 48 in telling her, your sins are forgiven. We, we understand the theological implications, but it's very personal. And remember, Jesus does more than speak mere words to her. He has power and authority to forgive sins because God is ultimately going to deal with sin. The promises that we hear in the Old Testament that God is a God who forgives find their fulfillment only in Jesus, but not merely in the words that Jesus speaks, but in his very actions. We will walk with Jesus through this gospel to the cross when Jesus is nailed to the cross in the place of this sinner. And he will speak words of gospel hope. Father, forgive them. A prayer he prays out loud so that you and I could hear it. Father, forgive them. Forgiveness comes not merely at the word of Jesus, but through the death of Jesus. And that's why she responds in love. And so make your evangelism personal. Grab a pen. Grab a pencil that's there. No, really, go ahead and do it. I want you to, I asked you to do this a few weeks ago, to write down the name of one person specifically. Because it it forces you to to stop thinking of evangelism merely as this great big gigantic task for the whole church, that everybody in the world needs to hear the gospel. It is that big, but it's this small. It's the person in front of you. And so write down the name of one person. I when, when we did this a few weeks ago, I wrote down the name of someone for whom I've been praying. He called me the next day. Now, I don't, I'm not telling you if you write down a name right now that that miracle is going to happen for you, but it, but it was a reminder for me as a preacher that sometimes if I'm intentional in praying and seeking out opportunities that sometimes God opens the door or kicks the door down and has somebody call and say, hey, I'm going to be there in 20 minutes. I'm taking you to lunch. And then he brings up Jesus when we sit down. So let's do it personally. Write down the name of someone for whom you will pray. And you will share the gospel with this week. Because as you see the depth of your sins, 
See, it's not that Simon is one who has been forgiven little, therefore it's okay that he continues to love little. No, the very story, the condemnation that comes on Simon is, you have been forgiven much, therefore you should love much. The woman is the one who understands it. Jesus loved her. He speaks the words directly to her. Your sins are forgiven. It is the claim of the authority of God, but it's personally applied to her. Your sins are forgiven. And then he gives her the assurance of hope, the assurance of salvation. He loves her. And he says to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let me pray for us as we come now to this table. Father, we rejoice in the hope of this gospel message. Lord, for those that are here who, like the Pharisee, are trusting in themselves, Lord, I pray that, that even as we've read and sung and heard today, that we cannot trust ourselves. We must trust in the righteousness of Jesus. So, Lord, let us turn from self-righteousness. Let us admit our sin. Let us come to Jesus, weeping over our sin, but then rejoicing when we find forgiveness in his death. Lord, for those of us who are hesitant to share our faith, Lord, make us bold in being personal with this gospel message. Strengthen us as we come to the table that's prepared. We come in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.